You remember doing that? You know, back when we wrote papers on paper? Or maybe you were trying to draw the perfect picture. Or maybe you were writing that letter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wrote one of those letters. Took several drafts, right? Like, yeah, that was stupid. Right to that special someone. And you just figured it's just better to start over. I just, a clean slate, just start it over. Or maybe that's a little too far back for you, but you've considered a kitchen renovation. And you, you know, you looked at those 80s cabinets for a couple of months. You're thinking, like, how can I be creative and make them look modern? And then you're like, gut it. Just gut it all, right? Start over. Just start the whole thing over. Or maybe it was your career. And you just, you know, you thought about, I'm in a midlife crisis, and I'm not doing what I'm called to do or supposed to do. And you start thinking about, maybe I can move to a different department in the company, and that would work. But then you're like, forget it. You go back to school. You finally start that business that you've always wanted to start. And you just figure, I've just got to start over. Because sometimes, sometimes you just need to start over. Sometimes you just need to scrap the whole thing and begin again. What about you? Do you need to start over? Do you need a new beginning? Does it feel like what is written on the pages of your past is unredeemable, unforgivable, unfixable? Like you've, you've made such a mess of your life that it's just best to just gut the whole thing and start all over. A complete renovation. By the time we're done today and we wrap our heads around this, this passage that we're going to look at and this story about Jesus, I hope I'll show you that it's not only possible for you to start over, but that the renovation project has already begun. It's not only possible for you to wipe your slate completely clean but that the wiping, the cleaning has already begun. We just have to join the party with Jesus. Hey, can I take just a personal moment uh, really quickly? Because my wonderful wife is in here, and we just celebrated 22 years. <clears throat> and... Uh, uh, I have never been Roman Catholic, but I believe in sainthood because I'm married to that woman, and uh, she's a saint, so uh, thank you, thank you. So the Christian faith is built and centered around the person of Jesus, but who was he? Why was he? A little over two months ago, we celebrated his birth with Christmas. You remember that? It wasn't that long ago. In about a month, we're going to celebrate his resurrection. But there is so much in between, there's so much in the story of Jesus' life. There are four perspectives on Jesus, four biographies, you might want to call them, about his life. And we're going to spend the next four Sundays and Good Friday looking at one of those perspectives. So this year... If you're brand new to Mountaintop, even if you're kind of new in the last year, like if you've been coming since last Easter, this is actually volume two or year two 
of a five-year journey that we began last year. <clears throat> last year, we began on the book of Matthew and studying passages that were just about, just from the gospel of Matthew. So if you're new and you're like, oh, I want to be a part of that, I want to see what, what that was about, you can go on our website, you scroll down kind of to last year, and you can find that super easy and watch along with that. Next year, we're going to look at the gospel of Luke and passages that are only found in Luke. The next year after that, we're going to look at passages in John that are only found in John. And the year after that, here's what you're going to find over these four years of the four Gospels, we're going to miss a lot of really big stories. Because a lot of the big stories, Jesus feeding the 5,000, they're in multiple Gospels. So that last year, we're going to hit kind of some of those major themes that were in a lot of the stories. But this year, we're going to do the shortest one. And it's simply called Jesus over these next five years. This, this preparation for the Easter season as we dive into the life and the ministry of Jesus. The shortest one of these is called Mark. And I'm calling this series From the Friend of a Friend. And you'll find out why in just a minute. But why are these passages only in Mark? Why did they stick out to him? What was, what was unique about these that only Mark wanted to share? Well, first, let's talk about who Mark is. Most scholars believe that he was also called John Mark, possibly the cousin of Barnabas. And he shows up a few times in the scriptures. He was not one of the 12 disciples, but he was one of the uh, kind of outer circle of disciples uh, in, in the early church. In fact, there's a really great story about John Mark found in Acts chapter 12 when Peter has this miraculous escape from prison. James, the brother of John, one of the disciples is arrested and Herod has him killed because the church and Christians are under great persecution and they arrest Peter and they're going to kill him too. Can you imagine if Peter would have died at that moment? But an angel comes in the middle of the night and breaks Peter free from prison, and he goes to John Mark's house. There's a really great story about, like, they, the, the lady named Rhoda that answers the door, and Peter's like, it's me, Peter. And she's like, and she's like it's Peter. And they're like, you're out of your mind. He's in jail. Uh, it, this is just a funny story. But he goes to John Mark's house. And so he and Peter already begin to feel, uh, kind of find a friendship. After that, Mark joins Barnabas, might have been his cousin, and Paul on some of their missionary journeys, and he is, actually the, he is actually in the center of one of the greatest arguments and disputes in the New Testament. At one point in the missionary journey, he, he leaves Paul and Barnabas and goes back to Jerusalem instead of staying with them. Well, they get ready to go on another journey, and Barnabas wants to bring Mark along, and Paul doesn't because Paul, you know, like, listen, you, you're either with me or you're not with me. And he left us. I don't want to take him again. And it says that Paul and Barnabas had such a strong and sharp dispute about Mark that they split their own ways. And Barnabas took Mark. But sometime after that, sometime after that, Mark joined up with Peter. And he heard Peter preach sermons over and over again. He heard Peter tell the stories in fact, there is a Greek historian on Christianity, on the Christian church, named Eusebius in the 3rd century. And he quotes in one of his works the early church 
apostolic father Papias, this is more history than you probably thought you were getting today, he quotes Papias, who lived from 60 A.D. to about 130 A.D., who wrote this about Mark. And it's one of the ways that we know about a little bit more of his history and what happened in that time that he linked up with Peter and the writing of the Gospel of Mark. This is a quote from Eusebius quoting Papias. <clears throat> Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered, said and done by the Lord. For he had not heard the Lord, because he was not one of the disciples and he was not part of the ministry, nor had followed him, but later on, <clears throat> excuse me, followed Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded. For to one thing he, that is Mark, gave attention, to leave out nothing of what he had heard. So when you are reading Mark's account of Jesus, you're hearing the words from the friend of a friend. You're hearing the words of Peter. These are sermons that he heard Peter teach over and over. These are, these are stories that he heard Peter tell around the campfire over and over. <clears throat> Most scholars believe Mark is the oldest gospel. That's pretty much universally recognized, recognized. Written somewhere between 50 and 70 A.D. Most scholars believe around the 60 A.D. mark. And here's what's, here's what's kind of interesting about Mark, and it makes this series a bit of a challenge. Mark, Matthew, and Luke are what is called the synoptic gospels because Mark was written first around 60 AD and Matthew and Luke were written, uh, you know, maybe a decade or maybe 15 years or so after that, that most scholars believe that Matthew and Luke already had Mark as a resource when they were writing their gospels. And they sort of used it as the bones. The reason they are called the synoptic gospels is because Mark is kind of a synopsis of the life and ministry of Jesus. It is an abridged version. It's like the Cliff Notes version. Does any, do they still have Cliff Notes? Do the kids, they still have Cliff Notes? Praise the Lord for them. I lived and died by them. <clears throat> Man alive, right? Man, when the teacher would ask something not in the Cliff Notes, you're like, that's just dirty. I mean, come on. <clears throat> I just wanted a synopsis of the story. And that's kind of Mark. It is so short, and it doesn't have a lot of detail. It's only 16 chapters. 90% of Mark is in Matthew. 50% of Mark is in Luke. So, it is very difficult to find stories, healings, miracles. It, it is very difficult to find anything in Mark that is not also in Matthew and Luke. So, it, when this series, Mark is the most challenging one. But there are a handful. There's a couple of miracles. There's a couple of paracle, parables. There's a couple of, of teachings. They're only found in Mark. And today, we're going to look in Mark 1, at the very beginning of a story that's actually in multiple Gospels. But there is this one little nugget, this one little detail that is only found in the Gospel of Mark in this story. And that detail is a story in and of itself. And it all centers around the baptism of Jesus. Now, like I said, this is Mark 1, and we're already on the baptism of Jesus. 
Mark has no birth narrative. He has no genealogies. If you read Matthew and Luke, they've got this whole genealogy of names of kind of where Jesus came from. Of course, Luke, we read every Christmas, so it has this birth narrative. Matthew tells the story of the Magi, the wise men coming. So they have all this. John starts off with this kind of mystical theological diatribe about in the beginning was the word and this metaphysical teaching about the word became flesh that's beautiful. Mark's like, just just details, guys. Let's get to the meat of the story. Jesus baptized. That's when things get really rocking and rolling. This story is found at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 in Matthew and Luke. It's in verse 9 of Mark. Right, I mean, we're chapter 1, verse 9, we're already at the baptism of Jesus. So if you got your Bibles, you want to look along in, in Mark chapter 1. If you're at home, grab your Bible there. We're going to camp out there, Mark 1, 9 and following. If you do not have a hard copy Bible and you're in the room, please take one at the bookshelves. We want to give that to you. This is what it says. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth and Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, there's a whole lot of Johns in the New Testament, okay? John Mark, who wrote this. There is John, the brother of James, who's a disciple of Jesus, who was in Jesus' inner circle of James, John, and Peter. And then, then this is John, who is also known as John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus. Luke tells the story of his birth to Elizabeth and Zechariah uh, right at the beginning of his gospel. He's baptized by John. So one of the things that's really interesting about this is that we see, we kind of assume that baptism is a Christian thing. And baptism is not a Christian invention. The Jews were doing uh, ritual cleansing, ritual baptisms uh, for thousands of years. John, I mean, though he followed Jesus, though he certainly believed Jesus was who he says he was, the Christian church started at the resurrection, and this is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and John's baptizing people. So that's just something to just kind of note. And this is, why we, this is why we baptize. This is why we get baptized. Because Jesus did. This was a new beginning. This marked Jesus stepping into a new season in his life. Now, Jesus did not need to be forgiven of any sins. So baptism for us has a different symbolism when we are baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We, it symbolizes this cleansing of our spirits that God has done in us. But baptism almost always marks a starting over. Right? It almost always marks a, a fresh start, a new beginning. And for Jesus, this is a starting over. This is a new beginning. It's just that no one at this point realizes what exactly is starting over. The next verse, Mark writes this. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, it doesn't say that the Spirit was a dove. It says that the Spirit was like a dove. But it is clear that some cosmic event is happening. Has anyone ever seen this? No, right? No one there had ever seen this. Heaven is literally being torn open. 
the Spirit, which is typically invisible, we are trusting that the Holy Spirit is here this morning, but we cannot see it. But the Spirit is personified. It's visible. Everyone around is seeing that something incredible is happening. Something different is happening. And the different was just beginning. Because next he says this, And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. This is not a normal occurrence in, in the Bible. It's, it's the only one of two times in the gospel stories that we hear God's audible voice. The other time is when Jesus takes his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain, which is another kind of turn, later on, a turning point of his ministry when God reveals to them that Jesus really is who he says he is. We, it's called the transfiguration. It's the only other time we hear the audible voice of God, and then this one. So this was not a normal occurrence. This told everyone around something is different. But I, I just want to lean into something here that's such a beautiful part of this story that I love. What does God say to Jesus? You're my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. What has Jesus done in ministry so far? This is the part where you talk. <clears throat> nothing. Yeah, no, Nothing. He hadn't healed anybody. He hadn't fed people. He hadn't turned water to wine. He hadn't made the lame to walk. He hadn't done a single miracle. He hadn't preached a single sermon. He has done absolutely nothing in his ministry. He has not accomplished a single thing in his ministry. And God, his Father, tells him, I love you. And with you, I'm well pleased. So Jesus goes into ministry. This is so good. Goes into ministry from blessing, not for blessing. And I just want you to know something. You, 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 you do not have to accomplish anything for Jesus, for God to love you. You don't have to. So often, we feel like we've got to prove ourselves worthy of God's love. Prove ourselves worthy of God's favor. And would it just change your whole life if you realize that you wake up in the morning and you operate from blessing instead of for blessing? Like you don't have to get it that day. You don't have to earn it that day. You couldn't do it anyway. You go from God doesn't need your accomplishments to love you. God is love. He loves you. Now you would think, at this point in the story, you got this son of God with whom his father is well pleased. He has his love. He has his blessing. And he's about to step forward into ministry. And you would think that it would just be smooth sailing from here. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Right after this, Jesus is my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. You remember that? It was just a verse ago. Listen to what the next word that Mark writes. At once. At once. Immediately. Like the dove is like, this is great. He's going to do so great in ministry. Where would he go? 
at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. At once. He thought he was going to ride into ministry on the coattails of blessings. And he sent into the wilderness. We think, come on. We think that because God is pleased with us and we have God's love and we have God's blessing that we won't get sent into the wilderness. In fact, we think that the evidence of God's blessing on our lives is that we avoid the wilderness. That's what we think. And we, and we think the opposite true. We think that if we are sent into the wilderness, if we are in a season of wilderness, that that must be evidence that God is mad at us, God is done with us. Has it ever occurred to you God might have sent you into the wilderness? Now, there are sometimes you're in the wilderness just because this world is broken. I like sometimes life just stinks. And you're not in the real, it's not any God's fault that you're in the wilderness. Sometimes life just stinks. It's just broken. Tragedy happens. Hard things happen. Terrible things happen. Sometimes you're just in the wilderness. But, 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 just because you have God's blessing, don't think that you will avoid the wilderness. Sometimes God needs to send you into the wilderness to do something in you in the wilderness so he can do something through you when you get out of the wilderness. And sometimes the only place it can happen is in the wilderness, right? Because maybe you have a purpose. So I have a tough question to ask you that I don't like that's very uncomfortable for me. Could God, could your pain be preparing you for your purpose? Could your pain be preparing you for your purpose? Some of you right now, you're in some seasons of pain and you have been going, why, Lord, am I in this? Why have you sent me here? Why am I in this God-forsaken office with these people I don't like? Why am I in this job that doesn't pay as much as I feel like I'm worth? Why am I in this season in my relationship? Why, why, why? Maybe he's got a purpose. Maybe, he's, maybe your purpose is to love those people you don't like. Could your pain be preparing you for your purpose. We don't like to think like this. We don't want to think about this, but this is precisely the reason that God, that the Spirit sent Jesus into the wilderness. He had some preparing to do because he had a purpose to pursue. He had some work that needed to be done in Jesus. And sometimes there is a season of testing. Sometimes the Spirit leads us where we don't want to go so we can grow. Maybe the Spirit is going to lead you into a season that feels like desolation, that feels like a desert, that feels like, a, that feels like wilderness because He needs to take you somewhere you don't want to go so you can grow because you can't get there. You can't become who you're supposed to become. God can't do through you what He wants to do through you unless you go through that season of testing. Testing might be training for your time. Like, we all want our time. Like, I'm ready to arrive. Right? And can I just say something to the younger generation? Listen, we, listen, we're spending a lot of money on you because we believe in you. But I want to tell you something. In your young age, there's going to be some testing. 
And you arriving is probably not going to be like 22. All right? You might get to 42 and you're like, I'm still arriving. I haven't got there yet. Your time is going to come. But I just want to warn you, there is going to be a season of testing that might be training for your time. And it might be scary. It might be vulnerable. It's going to be unpredictable. It's going to be hard. But it might be necessary for when your time comes. And Mark tells us that Jesus' time had come. And it would change everything. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. 40 days. 40 days make you think anything else? Listen, even if you didn't grow up in church, like you went to that one vacation Bible school with your friend, that one story that every kid knows, learns in children's church, what does that make you think of? Noah's Ark, right? It rained for 40 days and 40 nights. Peter was Jewish. He would have wanted his Jewish, uh, he would have known it, wanted his Jewish friends, the people that he had a heart for reaching the Hebrew people. He had a heart for reaching the Israelites. He would have wanted Mark to write that down because he would have wanted to know the significance of those 40 days because he would have known it. 40 days was a symbol of new beginnings, of starting over. It rains for 40 days and 40 nights with Noah and the ark and his family because God is starting over with humanity. Moses is on Mount Sinai to receive the law for 40 days and 40 nights because God is starting over with his people after 400 years of slavery. When they get ready to go into the promised land and they send spies into Canaan, into the promised land, guess how long they're in the promised land spying and figuring out? 40 days and Joshua and the spies come back after 40 days because God is starting over with his people in the promised land 40 days symbolizes that things are starting over later on there would be a giant named Goliath and he would scream at Saul's Israeli army for 40 days and taunt them until a little shepherd boy comes at the end of that 40 days and says I'll try because God is starting over with the monarchy for the plan that he has for a king that will be forever on the throne of Israel. Forty days is a starting over point. God is starting something over in the wilderness in Jesus. And there's a little clue there at the end at what might be starting over. Because he was being tempted by Satan. Can you remember another time in the Bible that somebody was tempted by Satan? The first story, right? When Adam and Eve are in the garden and they're tempted by Satan and through Adam and Eve, sin entered the world. They fell to that temptation. They disobeyed God. And now that sin runs through all eight billion of our veins. We are all daughters of Eve and sons of Adam. But the next line the next line that is only found in Mark, it's only found in Mark. It's the only little nugget of this story that only Mark has. It points to a fresh start for everyone and everything. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. 
It's a little part. Only Mark says it. Matthew, Luke, they leave it out. It's with the wild animals. Now, at first glance, you're just like, well, I mean, it just sort of tells you that the conditions were worse than we once thought. Right? The wilderness was wilder than we thought. I mean, there weren't just harsh conditions. There was harsh things. But Peter Peter would have wanted this to be known because Peter knew Jewish history. Peter knew the Hebrew Bible. And he would have, he knew the existence, he knew the reason for this, the importance of this. For nearly all of human history, man and wild beast, woman and wild beast, humanity and wild beast were at odds with one another. That young King David, he made his mark fighting bears and lions, the wild beast. Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Zephaniah, the great prophets of the Old Testament, talked of wild beasts being harbingers of judgment over a rebellious people. Humans just don't hang out with the wild beasts. The Romans threw criminals in the Colosseum so that people could cheer while they were torn apart by wild beasts. You don't just hang out with wild beasts. Well, one time humans hung out with wild beasts way back to the very beginning. Genesis 2 says this. Now the Lord had formed out of the ground all the, come on, say it with me, wild animals. They're wild. And all the birds of the sky. And he brought them to the man See what he would name them. He brought tigers and lions and alligators and grizzly bears all before Adam. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. That would be the most fun day on planet Earth. You just get to name them all. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. In a Genesis 2 world without sin, humanity and wild beasts were together and there was peace on earth, order in creation, and heaven and earth were joined and the relationship between the creator and his creations was perfect. And in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve fall to Satan's temptation, sent into the world through one man, and there is no more peace, no more order, and a broken relationship with God. Peter is screaming. That's why Mark is writing this down. And this was the beginning of Start It Over. This is a man tempted by Satan again, but this time it's different. His obedience to his father in the wilderness at the beginning of the ministry sets the tone for a Genesis 2 reordering of the world. He has come to restore, and Peter would have known, as any good Jewish boy would have known, the prophet Isaiah said this long ago, centuries before, in Isaiah 11, about a king that would come from the branch of Jesse, the house and line of David, which Jesus was from. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The fruit of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. The justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. 
With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And listen to this. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples the nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious and that day man and wild beast will be together again because order will be restored to creation God was starting humanity over in Jesus you can start over you can get a fresh start. Creation is getting a full-scale renovation, and it starts with Jesus. One man brought sin into the world through his disobedience from God and sent us from a garden into the wilderness. And the, and the one man in the wilderness who denied the tempting of Satan and obeyed God in the wilderness has set the course of God bringing order to creation again. And it's just the beginning. Just wait till he turns a grave into a garden. It's just the beginning. Mark declares that creation is getting to start over. And here's what I want you to know. If creation gets to start over, you do too. In fact... We haven't quite arrived at the order that Jesus is coming to restore. The kingdom of God isn't quite fully realized until he comes again and there's a new heaven and a new earth. That, that glimpse that he gave in the wilderness hasn't quite arrived. But you, you can 100% get a new you right out of the wilderness Right out of 40 days, Jesus went to preaching. Two verses later, this is what he says. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. It is close to you. If you're wondering where God is in your life, could you be close to God? Could you have a relationship with God? Could you start over with God even though you made some mistakes? I just want you to know something. It's right here. It's near. There's only two things, Jesus says. Repent and believe the good news. That's the hard one. Repent of your sins. Come to God, confess my sins. Repent of how my life doesn't align with his life. How, how the book that I've written doesn't align with his book. And just say, God, I'm broken. I'm messed up. I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I don't even know how you could love me. You just repent. But then Jesus says, believe the good news. Believe that somehow his grace and mercy covers you. Somehow you are forgiven for all those sins. Somehow his love covers over a multitude of sins. Somehow you can start over. And I just want to tell you something. If creation gets to start over, it started over, you do too. Repent of your sins. Believe the good news. And let God start writing a fresh 
new, clean chapter in your life that you will want to hold on to because it's a story he wanted to write all along. Creation started over in the wilderness because he wanted those who were made in his image, the pinnacle of his creation, to start over too. And don't leave this room today with anything left on that piece of paper of your life that you need to crumble up and throw away. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you that you are starting something new. Thank you that you are rewriting our stories. Thank you that Jesus came to start all this over. Can we confess, Lord? We need to start over. I need to start over. Lord, I'm praying for people in this room today, people watching online who need a new beginning. And I pray that they would repent and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a song called Run to the Father, Fall into Grace. It's a beautiful thing. And I just, I'm just believing that there's some people here that need to run to the front and fall into grace. I don't really ask our staff or any of our elders, but hey, if any of you guys are hanging around, would you just come up here just if people need to pray? If you might be going through a season of testing, a season of wilderness, and you just need somebody to pray with you, you might need to come repent and believe. And this place is open. This is the spot. This is the time to run to the Father and fall into grace and start over when you walk out those doors or when you log off. Let's stand. Let's sing and come.